1: Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that doesn't see red states and blue states, which is why going to see that film in 3D was a total waste of money. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and it is the end of an era as news stations called the US election for president-elect and face-drawn on a suited balloon Joe Biden on Saturday. Meaning sitting, or rather lying, president and petulant egg Donald Trump is likely set for a future where the next series of The Apprentice is just a reality show of his desperate efforts to become someone's prison bitch. Sometimes, reality provides an ending to a story that is far beyond the abilities of the world's greatest writers, let alone an amateur like me. There is no imagination out there that could have conceived of the longest four years of Bampot authoritarian chaos in the US coming to an end in the car park for a landscape gardening company next to a cremation centre and a sex shop, a perfect summation of Trump's entire presidency, burning and fucking everything while digging a massive hole and soiling himself in public. It was a perfect booking mishap, mistaking Four Seasons Total Landscaping in Philadelphia for the completely different Four Seasons Hotel, bringing Trump full circle from his campaign that started in 2014 on a downwards escalator, a metaphor that we should have all seen even then. As it happened, Trump wasn't even present, choosing to spend the day where he spent most of his presidency, golfing, the only place he can even pretend to believe in the need for a fair way. He hadn't been allowed in public since a statement he made on Friday night that felt like a Beckett monologue if the character Beckett was writing for was a fucking confused mess. It was an evidence-free ramble of accusations, of which none have been proven, and it felt like it should have finished with Trump flying off like a deflated balloon making raspberry noises before falling into the bin. But on Saturday morning he was at golf, writing everyone's jokes for them about how it was all finishing in a bunker. Meanwhile, the last dregs of his campaign bled out in a bleak industrial estate in a death fitting of a maligned movie mafia boss. Not that the Trump campaign would admit it was a mistake, and Trump's lawyer and uncle festering, Rudy Giuliani, was the perfect choice to hold the presser too, as someone who wouldn't know the difference between a hotel or a car park as he's clearly been caught with his pants down in both. Giuliani repeated Trump's evidence-free claims of large-scale voter fraud because nothing says believable possibility like fevered shouting from a bunch of idiots who can't even book a hotel. Then again, I suppose no one knows what fraud actually looks and feels like quite like President Trump does. Earlier in the week, as Trump was clearly behind Biden in terms of votes won, he demanded they stop the count, something that he's only previously said to those tossing up his opponent's golfing scores and his accountants, before an advisor had to explain that that would mean that Biden would win if they'd stopped the count right there and then. Trump then seemed exasperated that the mail-in votes were largely in Biden's favour, as it has to be confusing understanding just how that works when you've failed to deliver anything. So instead, Trump took to Twitter to insist he'd won the election by a lot, though it's only clear now that he meant one for parking. Voter turnout in America was the highest in over a century, so Trump should be pleased that he inspired so many just, you know, to get rid of him and never have to hear from him ever again. Areas that had been Republican in 2016 slowly turned blue over the four days of vote counting, and it was Pennsylvania going for Biden that allowed him victory. Which makes a nice change, as usually when Philadelphia goes blue, I have to throw it away. Biden received the most votes any presidential candidate ever has to date, beating his former boss Barack Obama and showing he successfully won over any racist voters who don't think black people should come first in anything. Trump lost the popular vote again like he did in 2016, which means that maybe it's time we refer to his style of politics as unpopulism. Saying that, he did still get the second most votes for a presidential candidate ever because it seems white women in the US believe true equality is removing rights for everyone. Biden, an old white man, won largely due to support from black women and young people who likely won't get the credit they deserve for it, as though the presidential election was just a crude scaled-up version of the care system. Biden's vice president and owner of the best not-now expression in the world, Kamala Harris, is the first ever female second-in-command and first ever person of colour in the role, which is an incredible sign of progress, something that I'm sure will be appreciated by all those black people she had incarcerated when she was California's Attorney General. Biden made a speech on the Friday night before he was confirmed as president-elect, where he said that the purpose of their politics wasn't to wage total and unrelenting war, you know, unless you live in the Middle East. Instead, he said, it's to solve problems, which is easy to do when the only answers you have are the same things that caused them in the first place. Biden said it's about ending partisan warfare, a sentiment he reiterated in his victory speech on Saturday, showing that he's already improving employment stats, even if it's only for speechwriters. He doesn't see red states and blue states, said Biden, only the United States, and wants everyone to stop treating their opponents as enemies. Isn't it just such a relief to hear the I don't see colour and there's good people on both sides arguments, but you know, a bit more eloquently, which makes all the difference. For Biden, it's an important message about bridging the divisions that Trump has caused across the country and reaching out to those even if you don't agree with them, which is why moderate Democrats have listened and stopped seeing the Republicans as their enemies and instead blamed left-wing members of their own party for making them likely lose the Senate. Ah, there's the United Nation we've all been missing. Biden has promised to overturn many of Trump's policies on his first day in office, but he's ignoring that he'll probably have to spend most of that scrubbing the place with all the disinfectant that Donald hasn't already drunk as a Covid cure. For a minute, though, it is, of course, worth celebrating because America can finally breathe out a big sigh of relief, though not if they're standing too close to someone as the place is absolutely riddled with Rona. The uncertain mayhem of Donald Trump is at an end. Well, nearly. He's refusing to concede and insiders say family members are trying to break it to him that he's lost, with even Melania telling him it's over, though it's uncertain if she meant his presidency. Trump will have over $900 million in loans that are going to be due in the new year, which the White House will no longer protect him from. If he does end up going to court, at least he'll finally be funding public institutions such as the legal system more than he did with tax payments as president. Even if he comes to term with actually losing something for once, well, apart from all his bankrupt business failures and any sense of morality, Trump will still be president until mid-January, which gives him plenty of time to tantrum his way through some terrible decisions and incite violence, all the while shouting fraud and losing court cases. Still, at least his staff won't have to go far to find a White House turkey to pardon on Thanksgiving. World leaders quickly congratulated Joe Biden on his victory. Well, apart from our Prime Minister and farmyard collision, Boris Johnson, who took ages and then posted a picture of a message in a shit font, saying that he looked forward to working closely with the US on their shared priorities, from climate change to trade and security. It's not a shared priority, Boris, if they prioritise doing things about them and you prioritise avoiding them to go on holiday or shag a violinist. The British government were one of only a few countries, including Russia, who didn't call out Trump's claims of electoral fraud as dangerous and unfounded, something that even-evil version of Deslinum, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko, said was a travesty of democracy, causing many pots and kettles to instantly resign. Foreign Secretary, who looks like he's trying to escape his own skin, Dominic Raab, refused to say that all votes should be counted in an election, so it's nice to know he's seen what's required to go on the Foreign Office sanctions list and thinks it's some sort of challenge. We should be fair, though, as Raab is currently stuck at home self-isolating after contact with someone who tested positive for Covid. Yet another example of him failing to negotiate well with foreign bodies. There is concern that Biden doesn't like Boris Johnson, as he's previously referred to him as a clone of Trump. Which, hey now, that's not nice to us Brits, as most clones don't survive very long and it will give us false hope. A former Obama staffer quote-tweeted the Prime Minister's congrats message to Biden and called him a shapeshifting creep, which isn't true, it's just the way his hair and mass undulate when he moves around. Tommy Vitor, the Democrat in question, said they will never forget Johnson's racist comments about Obama, which is good because pretty much everyone in Britain had done, or more worryingly, voted him in because of them. Johnson has insisted the UK and US will continue to have a strong relationship, which just sounds like they'll continue to tell us what to do because they're much bigger than us and Johnson is a chlorinated chicken. The Labour leader and talking luge track, Keir Starmer, said his party need to learn from Joe Biden's broad coalition, which is why over the last few months he's sacked ministers who didn't like the idea of rampant law-dodging spy cops and suspended the former party leader. Starmer said that Biden will put the US back on the world stage and Britain must stand with him, failing to realise that due to Covid it's easier if productions are a solo monologue with the audience as far away as possible. Why do we always have to lead things anyway? I'm a really big advocate of Britain finally getting a go at sitting at the back, eating crisps and occasionally shouting, yeah, what they said. This we must lead attitude, despite being largely irrelevant now, just makes us the global Marc Francois, which no one has ever wanted. Oh, and hunting accident Nigel Farage bet £10,000 on a Trump victory. So... (laughs) Take your um, in COVID news, despite attempts from Danish minks, that's as in the rodent, not Vigo Mortensen, eh? eh? Despite attempts from Danish minks to spread a new mutation of the coronavirus because they wanted to give it a go after seeing how the weasels in government pulled it off. Despite that, Pfizer, who sound like they should be fizzy drink makers, but actually prefer soft drug testing ethics. And BioNTech, which I assume made Robocop, have developed a coronavirus vaccine that is 90% effective. The Prime Minister's official spokesperson said it sounded promising, though chances are they won't go near it, as that 10% unsuccessful rate is far too low for their standards and would just show them up. Britain has ordered 40 million doses of Pfizer vaccine, which likely means once the order has been checked that we'll get a lot of fertilizer delivered by companies whose only experience of vaccines is owing one of their highly overrated albums. There are logistical challenges as the vaccine has to be kept in ultra-cold storage at below minus 80 degrees Celsius. And that's tricky because apparently the Home Secretary isn't keen on having to personally carry them everywhere. Care home residents and staff will be top of the list to get the vaccine first, but as there aren't many of them left now thanks to the government's protective ring mostly being on the outside of care homes, it'll be 80-year-olds that get it in the beginning. Giant baby Professor Jonathan Van Tam warned that the vaccine is as though we haven't won the Cup, but the virus can be beaten. I'm not really sure if football reference works when for months the government have left an open goal and picked a team made up entirely of their friends, regardless of abilities. Then he said we should imagine a cold, rainy platform with the bright lights of a train coming down the track, but various hurdles to overcome before you can get on board. And it doesn't really matter how they sell HS2, it always makes it seem even less appealing than before. What would be nice is if anyone in government could talk like a human being rather than a shit version of the Riddler, as all it seems anyone is thinking now is that NHS waiting times were hard before, but now you've got to complete some sort of circuit course and catch a speeding train before completing a football match just to get a vaccine. Maybe it's easier to extend the lockdown and we'll all just stay indoors. Johnson chimed in, saying he doesn't want to let people think the vaccine is necessarily a home run, a slam dunk, a shot to the back of the net, probably because none of those would work and it'll likely just be a quick injection in your arm. I worry with low staffing at the NHS, making sure you only hire American sports professionals to administer a vaccine will just increase waiting times. It was also revealed over the weekend that the head of the UK's Vaccine Task Force and face-swap between Ellen and Liam Fox, Kate Bingham, has spent nearly £700,000 of public funds on PR consultants that she insisted on hiring. It's really unclear what this team are doing that the staff at the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy couldn't do, and considering that lots of people have asked that question, they obviously aren't very good at PR either. So far, they appear to have helped Bingham prep for interviews and set up a government podcast called The Search for a Vaccine, which has got even less ratings than this show, and that's saying something. I'm not going to listen to it, but I'm guessing the basis of the show, The Search for a Vaccine, is them narrowing down potential ones with different theme challenges each week based on, I don't know, the 80s or musicals, before announcing a winner in the last episode and giving them a tour deal around all the conservative constituencies. It's not just Kate Bingham that's been given money for good press. The government finally caved into footballer Marcus Rashford's campaign for free school meals, hoping that it might distract from them looking like the only people in the world who think Trump has a case. More than £400 million will be spent on a winter grant scheme to help improve the lives of 1.7 million children, which is a welcome change from the number 10 spokesperson a few weeks ago insisting there's no need for free meals outside of term times. But hey, maybe that was Johnson's way of convincing himself to do it, as usually he's more than happy to spunk cash on things that are totally unnecessary. If only weeks ago Marcus Rashford had told him that kids in poverty desperately need to build a massive bridge made out of food, he'd probably have given double that without any question. The Chancellor and sort of person who'd buy Instagram followers, Rishi Sunak, also stumped up cash, saying that he'd extend the furlough scheme even further until March and announcing self-employment support too. And I think it's so lovely that he's found new and imaginative ways to tell us that we're all going to be in lockdown till spring. Much like COVID, Brexit talks have also been extended for yet another key week in negotiations, like all the other weeks have been key weeks, and you wonder if really the EU and UK should find better locksmiths. There are suggestions that Biden's victory in the US could change things, as he's previously been critical of the internal market bill and its threat to the Good Friday agreement. But that's assuming he'll still give a shit when he's having to spend all his time leading the military into the White House to have Donald Trump airlifted out by helicopter so his sulking face can be flown over DC like a loser's lap. Boris Johnson has now said he's always been a great enthusiast for a trade deal with our European friends and partners. You know, he always, apart from two weeks ago when he told them to stay at home and not bother. Is it the Biden victory that's now making Johnson aware he could be the main shithead bigot leader in town unless he does something different? It's a pleasant surprise if it means EU compromise and free school meal money as opposed to what you'd expect. And that's him spending several million of taxpayers money to get someone to cut his hair who once read about hair in a book or saw it in a film. Saying that, considering that after wheeled scissors near his head, I'd actually support that investment. And lastly, Secretary of State for International Trade, an only successful result of a relationship between a human and an inflatable pool toy, Liz Truss, has been accused of telling porkies about the new trade deal between Japan and the UK, as 9,434 of the 9,444 items that it provides tariff wins for aren't actually exported by the UK. Outside of the 10 items we do sell to Japan, the others include bird's eggs, hides, fur skins, handbags and 90% proof alcohol. If you think about it though, those will be all that we can salvage and forage for in a post-Brexit post-Covid Britain, with the caveat being that the super strong homebrew means that they may have to fight us for it. Thank fuck for is oh, Isn't it nice to have some sort of good news in the world? I'll admit that I watched so much of the US coverage that by the time Joe Biden was called as president, I was already burned out from cheering every second that Trump lost the lead in a different state. Um, I'm more than happy to be critical of Joe Biden on this show, I should say in future, but damn, I think we should all enjoy Trump losing for at least a week or until America descends into some sort of civil war, whichever comes first. It must be an amazing feeling for Joe Biden, though. I bet it's pretty much exactly like when I stormed it at a gig in Liverpool, but only because the act before me was from Manchester and had got slow hand clapped off. I couldn't have done any wrong that night. Next night, I bond though, and judging by US history, it's very possible Biden may do the same. Ha! Joke's about bombing people. How fun, slash bleak. Um, I think it's just so healing to have any sort of hope, isn't it? Trump was such a piece of shit that almost any alternative is so very exciting. Uh, They could have voted in, I don't know, like a piece of corn or something, and we'd have been like, fuck yeah, at least it's not Trump. Oh, they voted in a turd. At least it's not Trump. That's all it. You know, he managed to push the bar so low that I found myself exclaiming during Biden's speech on Friday, Oh, he can say full sentences. That's nice. The vaccine news is potentially very good, too. Obviously, that's really big news. Um, My wife has been told to self-isolate by the NHS app. Uh, She got told on Friday, Um, but I haven't. And we've been to all the same places in the last few weeks. And the only time we've been near any other people was outdoors and at a distance. So either I'm super immune or she's having a secret spy life that I don't know about. And the NHS app has blown her cover gutted take that mi5 you've scuffered yourself um yeah she hasn't got any symptoms so all it means is that i have become errand boy and have to fetch all the things from the outside and take my daughter sorry agent to the park in the rain while my wife gets to look out the window and say oh it looks grim out there as soon as she's able to escape outdoors on saturday i plan to wait for the worst shittiest rainy day and reclaim all of my indoor time i will never forget never forget. Um, I hope you're doing okay uh, in this uh, lockdown, but only, it seems, by name. No one's even really trying around here. They've all given up. They all gave up ages ago. Um, but it is still lockdown. I hope you're doing all right in it, and I hope that you managed to find some joy in um, well, quite a lot of joy, really, in the U.S. election results. It Just that's kept me going for at least a few weeks. Um, I was kind of hoping with lockdown at least for the birdsong bit to come back, but instead there's just been fireworks and twats joyriding, which is really not the same, is it? Um, thank you for listening to this, though the fireworks and joyriding of podcasts, mm, sort of. And a big thank you this week uh, to somebody, Emma, Helen, Kim, and Claire, who donated to the Kofi, and to Vicky for joining the Patreon crew. Who I realise I'm very sorry, Patreon people. I only thank you when you join, but not for. You donating every single month which is what you do uh, when you're on Patreon Um, and that's because well I'm ungrateful Um, no that's not true I'm very very grateful to you and uh, thank you to those of you who keep supporting this show I'm also not going to thank you every single uh, month because I'm going to forget because I'm ungrateful Um, now look I've been pretty full on in talking about how this show has become my only income what with all the comedy ever being cancelled but with Rishi Sunak announcing more self employed support thank fuck for that I will finally have some income until March, even if it's not for another month. And apparently rent can't just wait another month. Jesus, landlords. Um, But seriously, these are shit money times, and I'm very lucky enough to get something while others are not getting anything. So please do only chuck me a few pennies um, if it is to say that you enjoy the show and uh, it's not just out of pity. Unless it's pity that I do this show, uh, in which case, go for it. Otherwise, pop that cash in other places that need it right now. Like, I don't know, Pret a Ha! Joke. Um, Ovs, if you can't or won't donate, then uh, you can give the show a lovely five-star review or just tweet or Facebook or MySpace about it, as many of you have been doing. Thanks, Tom. That's a joke. And it's all very, very appreciated. Um, comedians only do comedy for the self-gratification, and I don't get that anymore. Um, so it's just your comments that I get, which I really appreciate. I don't get it from my family. My daughter, sorry, agent, has instead taken to taking all her clothes off just before dinner and then running around shouting, bum out, which I don't think is a review of my jokes, um, but it might be. And uh, either way, not particularly helpful. Um, One teeny bit of hopeful admin, because uh, you've got to have some optimism. It's an optimistic week, right? There's a bit more funding for jobs. Uh, there's a vaccine. Uh, Joe Biden. Look, here's here's more basically along exactly the same lines, uh, news that the world has been waiting for. Um, I might be doing a live podcast at the Leicester Comedy Festival on the 6th of February at the Peter Pizzeria. Um, I say might be. It's on the Leicester Comedy Festival website and it's all booked in. But, Who knows what the world will be like by then? Uh, Hopefully we'll all be vaccined up and uh, we'll have watched as Donald Trump will have been uh, sort of just charged out of the White House... um I don't know, by horse, probably dragged by horses. Um, you'll also be able to watch the show online on the 6th of February. And my aim is to get some local Leicester activists, experts, or just people who shout in the park, uh, to come and do a Q&A um, with whoever's in the actual audience. Um, I've popped a ticket link in the pod blurb, and I will annoy you about it a bit more nearer the time. But do check out the Leicester Comedy Festival website, which is... Google it, you'll find it. Um, also, look, and ask, and I'm really embarrassed to have to do this, really, because I honestly tried really hard to make my guests on this show as diverse as possible. But due to a number of things, um, just situations in life, it has been a solidly white interviewee uh, list for quite a while now. Um, believe me, it wasn't meant to be, and I'm very grateful for everyone that has done it. Um, but also, people that I did have booked in have selfishly done things like have a baby or get booked for more important things and have had to change it up. And ultimately, it's ended up that it's become very undiverse. So, look, I'd really like suggestions of more um, BAME guests to speak to about things that aren't just anti-racism campaigns too, um, about everything. And as I said, it's awful that I have to ask. It's shit. I'm shit. I apologise. But I'm having difficulty in finding people that are available and actually want to talk to me. I mean, who wants to do that? So all suggestions would be lovely. Do send them into all the usual places and even some unusual ones, if you fancy, I don't know, writing it on a cat or an ilusagna. Right, on this week's show, So, I am talking to Samantha Kutner, a.k.a. the Proud Boy Whisperer, about the US election and all about her extensive research on the far-right Trump supporting group who ruined my favourite T-shirt. That's obviously the worst thing they've ever done. Um, Plus, more US election things, and then I promise I'm never, ever going to mention it ever again. Ever. And Mary, where? USA? Exactly. Exactly. Hi, it me, Captain Party Pooper, the guy bringing a rain machine to your parade. Look, I'm sorry, but yes, it's amazing the tangerine bad dream has been halted, but wake up and smell the coffee from the chain shop of your preference. Things in the US won't just change overnight, or probably longer than that, if at all. Over the past four years, Trump's rhetoric and shouty all caps angry bully noise has given a voice to a number of dangerous and violent far-right groups who have been growing in disillusioned number for quite some time. As someone who grew up watching Indiana Jones, I've never been able to see the appeal of fascism when it definitely leads to your face getting melted off by the Ark of the Covenant, something that Steve Bannon's punched cauliflower mush clearly proved. But the trick of the alt-right was to pretend it's not Nazism at all, but instead a group standing up for its own masculinity and heritage, all of which must be protected at all costs from such horrors as, you know, equal rights for everyone or getting to play as a woman in a computer game. The Proud Boys are a prime example of this, a neo-fascist male-only organisation that say they reject racism but are also classed by US intelligence as a dangerous white supremacist group. So hey, they can't both be right and I'm pretty sure the latter are called intelligence for a reason. The group are avidly anti-feminist and have promoted and engaged in political violence across America in the last few years, claiming that they don't want their culture diluted. Considering their name Proud Boys comes from a song in Disney's 2011 musical of Aladdin, I feel they've only really themselves to blame for that. After Trump said during the first presidential campaign debate that the Proud Boys should stand back and stand by, the rest of the world were alerted to who the group are, leading, among other more important things, me to realise that I can't wear my favourite Fred Perry shirt anymore because fascists have ruined it. Ugh, fucking fascists. The Proud Boys sent threatening emails to Democrat voters during the presidential campaign and on Saturday, in response to Trump's evidence-free claims that the election was fraudulent, the leader of the group said they were rolling out and the standby order has been rescinded. That either means that more violence is likely or, weirdly, they're now off standby and are instead turned on and will hopefully deal with that in the privacy of their own homes. Are we about to see months of violence from Trump's most ardent and radicalised supporters or years of white supremacist terrorism as the new Biden administration becomes their next target? Or could Disney save everything by just releasing a porn version of Aladdin, keeping all the Proud Boys indoors? Definitely. This week I spoke to Samantha Kuttner, a.k.a. the Proud Boys Whisperer. Samantha is a research consultant specialising in providing outreach services to those considering leaving extremism and at the risk of being radicalised. Since 2017, she has both been doing intensive ethnographic research on the Proud Boys in particular and engaging members with the aim of helping them see outside of their far-right beliefs. Basically, she's hella brave, doing an amazing thing, and I've got no idea how she does any of it. Luckily, Samantha was happy to come on the podcast and explain all, as well as explain what the election results might now mean for the rise in fascism in the US. I should say that there are a number of things that Samantha talks about that you may not be immediately familiar with, being a a predominantly British audience. Um, So very quickly, uh, Charlie Kirk, who she mentions, is the creator of the far-right conservative group Turning Point US, who, I mean, um, look up their history and the diaper protest, because it's very, very funny. Um, UNR is the University of Nevada in Reno, and ethnographic research is simply a study observing a particular social group. I think those are the main ones you might come across. There's quite a few others, Uh, but hopefully that'll help if you're an idiot like me who wouldn't immediately know such things. I spoke to Samantha the day after Biden's win had been called, so I thought it'd be rude if we didn't start with that. Samantha, um, I'm speaking to you the day after uh, Joe Biden has been uh, projected to be president. He's been called. Um, How does it feel? Is it is it a good feeling today? Are you still anxious? Are you just exhausted?
3: I I mean, I was feeling a little fatigued, as I call it, uh, (laughs) for the past week. uh, But I believe it was Saturday. It was the first time I had like a carefree week where like a big weight was lifted. And then I kind of, you know, because I always monitor some of the content and I'm seeing the way things are, they're trying to ramp things up right now. Um, We're not quite out of the woods yet. This period between Biden being elected and actually going to office, there's a lot that can happen. But overall, I'm very pleasantly surprised.
1: (laughs) Oh, good. Good. That's good. So you weren't expecting, you weren't expecting that it would go Biden's way.
3: What I was expecting was that, um, the majority of the in-person votes would be Trump supporters and the mail-in ballots that were going to be counted were going to be, uh, Democrats. And I think that, uh, I believe Trump discouraged, uh, his followers from voting by mail, which left him at a disadvantage and a lot of the the votes that came in, uh, Wound up working against him. Uh, So I was anticipating at first that Trump would be technically announced the winner, and as the mail in votes were being counted, the judge that they recently installed would contest the election in an event similar to uh, to 2000. Uh, And uh, I'm glad that didn't happen. I'm glad that at least half of the population has their. Uh, are we like first? Oh, I have, I, I want They're stuffed together. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. we got a lot of work to do, but I'm, I'm happy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's a whole different conversation about the electoral college, but that is, uh, I still, as much as I know about US politics, it still baffles me that there are a bunch of people that can go, yeah, actually we'll just do what we want. And they're the president now, regardless. Um, so I'm very pleased they didn't go th- what they did in 2016. Yeah. <laughs> just terrifying. Um, so look, before we before we get into that, which is uh, yeah, it just must be very exciting. Um, I mean, here in in Britain, we're excited, which is a really odd feeling to be looking oh, across the, just a, across at you guys. Go, yeah, they did it. Now we've we've got to get rid of ours. We've got to get rid of our weird head <laughs> bigot. Um, <laughs> um, but look, to, to, I don't. I, I sort of feel like talking to you about uh, what you've been doing the past four years. It's slightly it might be raining on the parade or being a party people because it's sort of been good news, but. We'll discuss some of the things you've been looking at. And you are a... Um, I love that you call yourself the Proud Boys Whisperer. And I, I'd i like to know what that means because I've seen Horse Whisperer and a bit of Ghost Whisperer. And often uh, both of those. I think Jennifer Love Hewitt was quite sympathetic to ghosts when she whispered to them. Um, so I wonder what, what has your work uh, like been about? And, and I mean, in the UK, we don't really know much about the Proud Boys other than sort of Trump's comment to them not that long ago. <laughs> um, so I just wonder if you could tell us what your research has entailed since you started it a few years ago.
3: Uh, sure. The academic version, it's, uh, I study the gender dynamics of radicalization and I understand what it's like to fall in with a bad crowd. And I try to, I've tried for the past three years to understand the environment, the worldview of the proud boys enough to be able to interact with them from someone who is a feminist, but not the two-dimensional figure they have in their minds that they believe are ruining everything for them. Um, So I utilize the contact hypothesis, uh, which is just prolonged contact with counter stereotypical individuals, um, which over time can help reduce prejudice and hostility, um, the more colloquial version, which didn't make it to the website, but I'm also very proud of. Was, uh, <laughs> as the Proud Boys whisperer, I help model what proper social skills look like so Proud Boys can find their forever homes one day.
1: <laughs> oh, that's nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what made you start uh, looking at the Proud Boys or, or working with them and how on earth did you start speaking to members of the proud boys was it all just online communication
3: um well i before getting into my field was planning to become a dance therapist (laughs) and uh to do that requires an undergrad degree in psychology with a minor in dance And my first semester at UNR, I happened to meet Dr. Frigeti, one of the pioneers in the field of dialectical behavior therapy. Uh, He's now at Harvard. And uh, I I got him the last semester before he went there. And I just fell in love with the empirical side of things. And I wound up... um, I grew up in the Orthodox Jewish community in Vegas. So I had studied religious fundamentalism, but never in an academic setting. It was just kind of an experience that I'd encountered. And, you know, what is it like to be a part of a community, but not adhere to religious tenets? And I think that perspective shaped my early research, which focused on um, religious fundamentalism across different categories, different religions. Um, And so I wound up studying foreign terrorism, Uh, And I was pretty much content to go on that track. But then I saw a student at my university become the poster child for the Unite the Right rally. And uh, I realized the importance and need to focus on uh, terrorism and extremism that operates from within our borders. And I noticed that there was one group backtracking from their involvement in Charlottesville. They were saying that the members who joined weren't really members that the group was just a misunderstood fraternal drinking organization. And this is how I came to learn about the Proud Boys. Um, So uh, the fact that I was approved by my review board to study the group is a testament to one of their primary strategies that they use to evade detection, which is crypto-fascism. They're not gonna call themselves an ultra-nationalist street gang, but calling themselves the Proud Boys is seemingly innocuous and gets pushed through. if I had told my review board I want to study a violent extremist organization and out of your mind uh, but if I said I want to study the Proud Boys they were like oh how quaint you know They <laughs> didn't say how quaint but it was just very like it was pushed through because there was so little known about the group at the time um, so even the strategies and the methods that I used were, were all about how to study groups like this when very, very little is known. So grounded theory and other methodology and ethnography, which involves being immersed in the environment while doing one-on-one interviews. So whichever method they preferred to speak through, whether it was DMs, uh, Facebook messenger, email, phone, uh, a few of the in-person interviews were through anti fascist because that's the other side of my ethnographic research. Um, but uh, we did an online ethnography um, which was better for me for my own safety and also enabled me to really understand these this like the way that they formed community and identity online
1: so did it i mean you just you mentioned there that when you first were looking at them in in, is it in charlottesville there were comments about how they the members weren't really members did, did it start as something else the proud boys has it become something more and perhaps more dangerous over the last few years or has it always been uh something to be concerned about
3: other members have said the group was explicitly alt-right at its inception the leader of the group Gavin, former leader former <laughs> uh, he uh he said that the group started as a joke um but that is often the way that people obscure their intent and i always try to emphasize the fact that the kkk technically just started as a joke when the kkk said wouldn't it be hilarious to dress as confederate soldiers and terrorize communities of color um that it's never just a joke it's more of a trying on before you fully commit And that's the danger that groups like the Proud Boys pose. I was studying them from this uh, perspective of a radicalization vector. And uh, I was open to the possibility of being
1: wrong, as you
3: should be. And uh, everything that I have found in the course of my ethnographic research has supported that. (laughs)
1: It's it's quite a sort of alt right tactic to say that they're just joking, isn't it? It's something that's been going on for the last few years and been, that was what all the Pepe memes were about. Oh, it's just a joke. You can't take a joke. And the, the sort of criticism of people that couldn't understand it as snowflakes or not be able to have a sense yeah. of humour, when actually it was outright fascism uh, sort of from the beginning. Um, and I mean, and that's something that the sort of thing, the little bit that we know about Proud Boys, it does uh, that sort of frat group thing, though. Know, that's the kind of immediate image you get from the name. Um, But where are we now in 2020? Is it, you know, are they, are they sort of a a terrorist group? Is that how you'd class them? You get sort of a far right extremist group, but is it a belief system or, you know, and how, how big is it? How big uh, does it kind of stretch across America? How many members are there?
3: Um, So as a fellow at the Khalifa Eiler Institute, we define extremism as advocating for, or uh, championing the violent denial of diversity you're not going to know about the group based on how they self-identify and attempt to portray themselves. You're going to see their worldview assert itself in the incidents that they organize, target, and co-attend. The Proud Boys incident map evolved from my ethnographic research because as news stories, as collecting stories, as they came, as they were coming in, I was checking with members And there were too many discrepancies between how they viewed the incidents and what was being reported by mainstream news channels. And so I thought it was important to use data to rebut the claims that the group is just a misunderstood fraternal drinking organization. Uh, And uh, thankfully, many journalists uh, early on began reaching out. And it's something that's continued. And I've kind of become um, a. A respected subject matter expert on the group, through the ethnographic research, through the OSINT tracking, uh, and through the um, playful counter narratives that I often do on on Twitter uh, on occasion.
1: <laughs> and but how, how worrying is this stuff being that you found out about them? Because I, like I said, I suppose for us in the UK, we know very little about them, and so we know that they're they're a very minor th- or you know for, for us it's a, something that we've heard mentioned once by Trump. And, and not very much else. Are they quite a big threat in the US? Is it um, something that sort of uh, you're worried about it becoming big or is it something that is already uh, a very dangerous group?
3: They are a very dangerous group and they're probably one of the most dangerous organizations out there, not necessarily because of their... Um, like the tactics that they engage in, you know, they're not like the base where they're more clandestine. They hide in plain sight. And they have the ability to pull the mainstream to the fringes by reshaping the face of the far right. Um, it, It becomes like an assertion of their masculinity. And that has a very strong appeal across the board. There are chapters in different countries. You can consider them a transnational organization. In Europe, a fierce anti-immigrant rhetoric pushed by Breitbart and other media outlets have directly contributed to the formation of groups like the the Proud Boys and other identitarian groups. Um, so it's it's not going away after Trump leaves the office. There's going to be there's going to be a need to be a concerted effort to uh, I mean, I always try to focus care and accountability. You know, it's it's important to understand the men who have gone that path without considering the implications of what they're embracing at the time. And it's important to understand when someone has crossed that threshold and has dehumanized someone to the extent that violence becomes a legitimate option.
1: And, and is that, I mean, uh, we'll sort of get um, into what may happen, I think, uh, with, with Trump's loss, but... I'm guessing they were legitimized by Trump, but did it start there? Because this is a an attitude that's been going on for quite a while. Gamergate seemed to be quite a pivotal moment, moment for a lot of this to kick off. Yeah. And what what's begun this? Is it years of kind of discontent? Is it uh, Are there any sort of genuine reasons that, that this started with before it became such a toxic movement? Or is this all just through Trump and, and the last four years?
3: So you really hit the nail on the head with Gamergate. I mean, m- misogyny or hatred of women is really the glue that holds the disparate elements of the far right together. Um, if you've heard of the term the manosphere, where the disparate male grievance communities are, they were talking about other issues and they were talking about kind of conspiratorial notions about feminism being the thing like or the reason why they can't advance in life. Um, the red pill communities are uh, a big part of that. Um, in my research, I say to take the red pill in the gendered sense is to open your eyes like Neo in the Matrix to the reality of male subjugation by women under feminism. Uh, and once you adopt that conspiratorial worldview, um, other conspiracy theories, it just kind of primes you for them. Um, so you see the disparate elements of the you know, of the far right, the pickup artists, the incels, radical traditionalists like Proud Boys claim to be. Um, And then in 2014, around that era, you see everything converge and people starting to get more organized. And then Trump, because he, from the beginning, uh, framed America as weak and effeminate, and him as the champion, like the masculine defender, those types of narratives were very appealing to groups like the Proud Boys. Um, the Proud Boys formed in 2016 during Trump's presidential campaign. You're seeing them in 2020 return or try to return to the thing that gave them power. Um, so it's, they have a symbiotic relationship uh, and and Trump has issued uh, during the first debate, he says, stand back and stand by to Proud Boys. And that is, you know, one of the dog whistles that they all heard and continue to say. You know, standing back, standing by. sir. even rallies as recent as yesterday and the day before, people were uh, wearing, uh, holding signs that said, you know, standing back and standing by.
1: Because how how do people get into this, or how do they join the, the Proud Boys? Because I know quite a lot. Of, a lot of people were radicalized via YouTube, and it's a kind of. Algorithms cause people to see the same kind of uh, alt right, far right videos again and again and again. Is mm-hmm. it is it simply that? Is it kind of hammering the message to uh, potential candidates again and again, or is there is there something else to it? Is there, you know, I, I'm kind of interested in where this is come from because in a way, um, and I'll, we'll get to this more. But one of my concerns about a Biden win, which is obviously a brilliant thing and it's great we get rid of Trump, but is there a chance America will go back to what it was before, which caused Trump to then get voted in? And so where are we, you know, what's causing these people to want to join the Proud Boys and how are they becoming radicalised to be part of the group?
3: Well, there's no single entry point into recruitment, but the red pill communities, the male grievance communities were definitely a big part of it because early 2015, 2016, um, they would choose the what they called the Lowell Cows the two dimensional figures, the very loud, but largely misinformed like women and uh, what they call SJW characters, kind of spouting off nonsense and then taking clips of that and making that representative of all people to represent the left or Democrats or democratic socialists. Um, so these, these characters, these reaction videos were a big part of recruitment in the beginning. Um, Trump's presidential campaign, their presence at rallies there, and and not just um, attending to recruit, but having those images be shown uh, national news organizations uh, could get people curious. Um, One Proud Boy that I interviewed um, joined the Proud Boys after what they called the Battles of Berkeley, which was when Milo Yiannopoulos came to campus. Um, They were using guerrilla marketing tactics at the time where they would like put an idea that was controversial and the reaction to it would drive, um, would drive recruitment and drive interest. Um, That's something they're still trying to get off, but it's not as successful as it was then. Um, so, this guy saw Proud Boys being assaulted or like selectively edited videos without showing what happened before of Proud Boys being assaulted or after being assaulted and said that, you know, he was very opposed to violence and that's why he joined the Proud Boys. And uh, after prolonged contact with me and just us engaging, respecting each other, we're coming up with analogies together, um, really, you know, wound up to be like a decent person. Um, him joining was based on being against violence and then when he slowly was confronted with the violence that his group was championing he could no longer justify his involvement in the group so first he stepped down from his position as council member and then later on i you know i was you know we were talking and every so often i would say you know what are your thoughts on this um here's how it's being depicted in mainstream news organizations what are your thoughts right without being attached to an outcome, which is really hard because there is that voice in the back that's like, um, you know, can't you see? I really want you to get it, you know, (laughs) but you can't do that. Um, So letting them come to it on their own uh, is is what happened with that member. And then he had one more newsletter and was just like, that's it. I quit. I'm blaming you. (laughs) Amazing.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's it's incredible that you – I, mean, I think it's incredibly uh, courageous to reach out as well. I think it's one of the things that I've, already I've seen. One of the messages today was we've got to reach out to the other side. And I saw lots of people on Twitter going, fuck that, you know, <laughs> no, they're no interest. In, but but what you're doing is is very much that. And how, I mean, where do you even begin with de-radicalizing someone that's got it so in their head that the news is all fake and that everyone's, you know, there's, it's almost a paranoia, isn't it? That everyone's out to get them or destroy what they, they stand for. Mm-hmm. It, it, I mean you you know you said uh, earlier on in the interview that it's about presenting them an image of um, a feminist who isn't the sort of 2D idea that they have but but how, where where do you where do you start and, and how do you reach out and what sort of methods should we be using to talk to people like Well,
3: you? overall, um, you know I hate preaching to the choir. I like to inform the public but I find it intellectually stimulating to engage with people who have different ideas. And this is where, you know, very careful, you don't want to platform any views, right? In the beginning when people didn't know about my approach to things, the accusation was that I was a fascist sympathizer, which is couldn't be farther from the case. Um, You have to have a certain ear for the legitimate grievances behind the conspiratorial, like, like layer of it. If you talk to them long enough, there's usually some history of trauma. Uh, there's some major life event. There is a situation where they didn't necessarily have not just coping skills, but basically like, you know, how to deal with rejection, how to deal with a major life transition, how to deal with job loss. Um, how to overcome the idea that other cultures existing is a threat to your own. i I'm sure you've heard of the like, Oh, it's okay to be white. Like nobody is saying it's not okay to be white, uh, except for the white supremacists who need that narrative to pull people in. Right. Um, Cause there's a lot of things. Like I speak to a cop who is uh, he's Irish and he's like, everybody else can celebrate their heritage and I can't celebrate Irish culture. I'm like, nobody is. Who is saying that? You know, a lot of us, a lot of us are like, where did you read this? Oh, I can see if you read this and you have this bias, you would be inclined to believe this. Here is another source, which has this counterpoint, which you can engage with or not. I don't give a, sh-. you know, like, <laughs> like you just have to be like, uh, here's the information. If you want to talk more about it, we can, but, this is a source that is designed to persuade you to believe in something, it's not intended to inform. Um, so it's a lot of, um, not talking down to them, but holding a space where it's like, yeah, nobody's saying that, <laughs> nobody's doing that thing. There's not gonna be like internment camps for conservatives, like chill. <laughs>
2: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this
1: dinner party started. And we'll be back with Samantha in a minute, but first, Yes, look, it's premature, as he's still got some time in the White House left, and there's every chance that the next 11 weeks of Trump will be the very worst yet. But while we embrace this temporary moment of an absolute bag of dicks of a human being losing, it's only appropriate that I give old Donnie Trump pants the traditional par bro political obituary of all the descriptions of him on this podcast to date. Uh, bear in mind, there are fucking loads of these, and this episode is long enough already. Some of these are very lazy and unimaginative, but then again, so is he, so I think that's fair. Donald Trump is a bag of bluster with a wig on it. A broken windsock being humped by a shiatsu. A hairy dried apricot. The best unwanted howling baboon tribute act. Donald Trump is a melanoma with a face. Donald Trump is an angry racist satsuma. A racist blister. He constantly looks like he's burning up with something you only get from having sex with things in a skip. Donald Trump is the man who were Sigmund Freud to have delved into his mind, he'd have described him as a gargantuan orange asshole. Captain Bouffant McTwat KKK-endorsed celebrity Chris Stingle Donald Trump is the troll king, the real-life version of how Pixar might animate the wind A bloated orange head of America, a fucking cartoon The Tangerine Nightmare, a man who had struggled to beat a chicken at Boggle An annoying orange, a batshit fuzz pumpkin An American Pat Butcher Donald Trump is a radioactive Edam, a hate gibbon, an ulcer with a wig. The only man to survive being bitten by a radioactive high-vis jacket. He's a teratoma in a suit. A sense of conviction weaker than Harrison Ford's flying abilities. A man who looks like he's barely survived a nuclear fallout already. A cheese puff eruption. A neon verruca. Ambergris with features. Silly putty rolled in fluff. A twat pumpkin. An atomic kumquat. An animated bowl of potpourri. A confused Edam ball. A constant warning as to why you should all wear sunscreen. The only known child of the mother of vinegar. Donald Trump is what happens if you don't lance a boil. He's a public health warning about why you shouldn't give the Lorax crystal meth. He's the missing link between a stomach ulcer and a blobfish. He's a porridge-filled windsock. He's a man whose computer password is whatever it writes when you bang tidy ham fists on a keyboard because shouting at it doesn't work. He's a day-glow Eric Cartman. Donald Trump is a balloon filled with semolina. He's the bad year blimp. He's a congealed custard sculpture of a Belgian griffin dog with underbite. He's a croissant attached to a turkey. Donald Trump is what it would look like if there was a Japanese mascot for hemorrhoids. He's what happens if you leave a cup of soup out for too long. He's Glengarry Glen Gross. He's a swollen jelly baby, a dried apricot with horror teeth. Donald Trump is an untreated ulcer, a physical manifestation of heartburn, the love child of a pantomime horse and some rust, the love child of two saggy elbows. He's the only person to both look tanned and not well at the same time. Donald Trump is a bleached pork knuckle. Donald, oh no, I forgot that was what was in the fridge. Oh, that's what's causing that smell, Trump. He's a tigger onesie filled with macaroni cheese. He's a stupid cheese popper. He's an oak smoked barrel ripened hernia. He's a baboon ass, a bloat drone, a shouting ass boil, a physical manifestation of trapped wind, an inflamed tonsil, a bronze sculpture of a trash heap. Donald Trump is the only person even the thing would go, nah, I'm not going to impersonate that. He's trampled langoustine, sea pork with eyes, Walking heartburn, a collapsed souffle, an unerupted tooth in a suit, a half-deflated bouncy castle, an inflated gallbladder, a drowned orange ruffy fish, a colostomy bag full of iron brew, an angry pimple, a football bladder filled with primula, an infected arse implant, a blow-torched howler monkey, a lazy, lazy cosplay of Jabba the Hut, an extra in TV's Chernobyl, a human vuvuzela, a malignant haystack, a scorched rucksack full of lipids, a festering perennial abscess, a half-digested dumpling. Donald Trump is Boris's American twin, the Tweedle Cunt to his Tweedle Twat. He's a modern-day Chernobyl disaster, but in a person. He's the Babacrook, a child's crayon drawing of a sad pineapple. He's a high-vis embolism. He's what happens if you encase a wind tunnel inside orange Play-Doh. He's a meat hoover, leather wrapped round an air horn, a long drop with hair, a face swap between a peak and his dog and some overheated silicon sealant. He's a human croc shoe, microwave punch bag, a blowtorch bagpipe, a thrown out fairground decoration. He's what if there was a ship made of spam and it crashed into a mountain of turds. He's a mistreated tuber, a vocal peptic ulcer. The film The Fly, but if a bag of fluorescent paint and a haggis got into the machine instead. Donald Trump is a rusted wally bird, a flatulent grapefruit, an irradiated clegnut, the leftover contents of Buffalo Bill's wardrobe, the remains of a bouncy castle fished out of a quagmire, decayed lobster mushroom. Donald Trump is a pumpkin that scares all the kids, he's a pumpkin-spiced hemorrhoid. RIP Donald Trump's political career. <laughs> Brexit talks are still ongoing, uh, Covid is still running around the UK like it owns the place and Boris Johnson is still an irredeemable prick. So instead, here are some quick answers to questions you may have had about the US election and after hearing my answers, we'll probably still have, or are too happy thinking about Trump being sad or Nigel Farage losing £10,000 to give much of a shit. (laughs) Nigel Farage lost £10,000. Is Trump still president? Yeah, till noon on January the 20th, when Joe Biden will get inaugurated, uh, which Trump will no doubt not go to, as seeing an actual crowd of people might confuse him. So that's 11 weeks, during which he can still dismantle whatever he likes and try to pardon himself and his colleagues. Thing is, pardons only apply to federal crimes, but Trump and his associates are currently being investigated by a state prosecutor over hush money paid before the 2016 election to two women who said they'd had sexual encounters with Trump. And the DA leading the case says the probe now could focus on bank, tax and insurance fraud too. If Trump asks where the evidence for this, the district attorney should just take a leaf from Trump's book that he clearly hasn't read and say, ah, it's disputed. No president has tried to pardon themselves before and the constitution isn't clear on it. So who knows? Though by its nature, a pardon is asking for forgiveness for wrongdoing, which means Trump would be admitting to doing something wrong and that's not really his bag. If there was a way Trump could give himself a pardon even though I know you don't need it, then he'd be right there, I reckon. There could be executive orders, or worse, Trump could just rally up his supporters to take up arms and cause shit. This is the first time anyone in America actually hopes he'll just piss off and use taxpayer money to go golfing for months, but chances are it'll be something far more below par. Can Trump still win the election? Well, the chances are slimmer than Trump committing a random act of kindness because it's a sunny day and he's feeling kind. But in theory, yes, he could. It's so, so slim, though. It's Slim Shady. It's Slim Wild. It's Slim Carey. The Electoral College don't make their official announcement until December the 14th. And while it's unlikely they'd go against the decision that's been called, I mean, they are the Electoral College and they hate you. Trump has filed several lawsuits too, but already 10 of them have been chucked out of court, which must have been so fun to do. And I do hope those judges physically flung them into a recycle bin while shouting, Fuck you! Biden has a lead of tens of thousands of votes, so even if the courts did decide any ballots were dodgy, it would have to be so, so many to overturn the election, so that's very unlikely. Voter fraud is very rare in the US and Republicans actually brought in so many rules to make the access to voting even more difficult. So if anything, this is on them. You know, like everything. Same with recounts, in that Trump's only entitled to recounts in states with less than a 1% margin, which is currently Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, and that's with votes still being counted so that margin is likely to get even bigger. Recounts rarely ever change an election and Trump would need several states to show enough of a difference for it to matter. So all it would do would just make it in the headlines that again he's lost somewhere and for that I'd say, yeah, do it, it'll, it'll upset him all over again. He'll have to pay for it too unless the margin is really small, so it'd be beautiful if Trump got bankrupt again on day double checking just how much of a loser he actually is. Lastly, Trump's threats of using the Supreme Court are unlikely to work, partly because there's no evidence for voter fraud, but also the justices are unlikely to want to get involved if it's clear Biden has won in so many swing states already. There's one case pending about the validity of Pennsylvania votes that were postmarked before Election Day but arrived after, but again, even if the court decided they weren't valid, there aren't really enough of them to change anything. So yes, there is a chance that Trump can still win, but really, actually, and bigly hugely, no. Um, who voted? Uh, more people than ever, actually. Uh, Biden so far has got over 75 million votes, and Trump depressingly over 71 million. Previously, Barack Obama had the most of over 69 million, so this means a whole ton of people that didn't vote before, um, did this time, both to keep Trump in and boot him out. Sorry, I meant vote for Joe, but mostly vote Trump out. Also, 1.7 million voted for Joe Jorgensen of the Libertarian Party and 60,000 for Kanye West because, yes, there are people in the U.A. who are even worse than Trump supporters. It must be gutting for the Libertarian Party to never win, but then they also believe in freedom of choice, so they're probably very happy about it too. Otherwise, the stats aren't that different to how they were in 2016, when Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote. 52% of voters over 65 voted Trump last time, and 51% this time. 52% of white women voted for Trump last time, and 54% voted this time because Handmaid's Tale cosplay is in. Trump got an increase in votes from black men, Latino men and women too, but a slight drop in votes from white men. So slight, but still 57%. So who on earth voted for Biden? Well, predominantly young people, and that is young people of colour and black women. Biden won 61% of the youth vote, though only 51% of young white people, but 76 69 and 51% for black, Asian, and Latino youth voters. Young white women voted Biden, young white men voted Trump, and 87% of black women voted for Biden. Basically, everyone who's been happy with police violence, suppression of women and minorities, horrific immigration measures, and being racist, were very happy to keep things as they are, which is odd, isn't it? Everyone else, not so much. of Republicans still voted for Trump, which is a rise on 2016. So it's great that big groups of former moderate Republicans like the Lincoln Project pushing to get more votes for Biden took $67 million in funds to do absolutely nothing. Then again, I also can't think of anything more classic moderate than doing that. Complaints that Black Lives Matter and Green New Deal turned off voters don't seem to make much sense when it was young voters whose stats show care about the environment and black voters that won this for Biden. But, you know, you guys back away from that if you want and we'll see you in 2024 trying to appeal to the same people that ignore you every single year. While Kanye West gets a massive victory. US political scientist Rachel Bitterkofer says there's no such thing as a swing voter and it's all about who turns up to vote instead and how many. She predicted the outcome of this election back in February and says the reason Clinton's campaign lost votes in 2016 was because the group that should have voted Democrat were turned off by her approach in trying to change Republican voters instead of catering for them. And the Republican voters obviously didn't vote for her either. But I guess none of that is as fun as making friends with your opponents and hoping voters will just get confused as to which of you is which at the ballot box. What will Biden and Harris be like? Yeah! Well, probably um, a lot like things were before Trump. Biden's already talking about rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement and the World Health Organization, as well as not focusing on the NATO spending budget half as much as Trump did, and probably trying to repair US foreign policy and things like the Iran nuclear deal and lifting Cuba's embargoes again. He's already announced the COVID panel of scientists, doctors and public health experts that he's going to be working with, which I mean, how weird is that? People who understand how COVID works dealing with COVID? Fuck off, mate. Next, you'll be reading things that are sent to you. What is the world coming to? Biden told the nation that masks are not a political statement, which isn't true, as mine says fuck Boris on it. He also said that Americans of colour who've been hardest hit by Covid must be a priority, not an afterthought, saying the vaccine will be distributed equally and free for everyone and not just mainline straight into his veins because he's got it from not wearing a mask stomping around being a twat. Oh, it's just so nice to have a change. A majority Republican Senate, which is looking likely, may block a number of things he tries to bring in, leading to the kind of stalemate many Americans got sick of and then voted in Trump because of. At the same time, Biden is renowned for the sort of compromises he can do in the Senate, having been in there for 40 years. Also, he can sign executive orders and says he plans to do so, including cancelling the first $50,000 of student debt in the first 100 days, which will change things for an awful lot of people. The plans are also to focus on climate, a $15 minimum wage and an infrastructure bill that will employ people with criminal records. Oh, and of course, fixing some of Trump's immigration horrors. So yeah, all the stuff you just hope a reasonable person would say, while Trump still hasn't even made a public appearance since Friday. Overall, there's of course many worries that Biden won't bring in enough change, but it's hard to dispute that right now any change is really nice, especially one that makes speeches that you finish listening to and realise you didn't take in any of it because you were just so pleased it wasn't racist, sexist or really fucking weird. Barry asked if you could accidentally book a car park for a major press conference, which company would you use? Uh, Thanks Barry for sending that one in. Um, Sentinel Car Park in Leeds, while insisting that i try to book a press conference on a large robot that hunts the X-Men and now back to samantha but i guess that's that's uh slightly more gentle because i I'm, so i use twitter a lot and i'm on and, and twitter is so aggressive and i think it's partly to do with the lack of characters that you can use and so if somebody disagrees often countering it starts an argument rather than a reasonable conversation so i guess yeah. you you need a sort of more uh a more a more open platform to be able to discuss these sort of things where you can kind of suggest rather than say that they're wrong right it's not just countering it's allowing them to discuss it
3: yeah and that was the beginning of uh the based and book pilled series which i'm just starting to really kick off the ground as i was conducting a lot of most of the things come from the ethnographic research um but as i was talking to members there seemed to be a lot of patterns and some of the legitimate grievances you know like they have misattributed the ills of capitalism to feminism. And I'm not saying that capitalism is bad within a hybrid system where things kind of balance each other out. Um, But the idea that like your worth is contingent on what you can produce from the market, many Proud Boys lack the self-awareness to get to that point. And so the vehicle that I chose for that specific thing was a science fiction reading, like a short science fiction reading. Uh, And so it's, it's interesting to see like what content actually resonates with people and it's something that i'm experimenting with more and even the chairman of the proud boys was like you know because when proud boys would ask me like you know what's going on what are you doing with bass and book pill i was like well ask tario and uh you know ask the chairman and then he's you know came to me and was like why are you having people messaging me like i'm q right and uh, <laughs> and uh, so there is a there's a rapport with him but there's also like he knows that I'm not the type of person who will let him lie to me or the public. I have been interviewing him all summer, but these are things that won't be released because if there's any chance that anything could be platformed, I do not want to take that risk. Um, but ultimately like the ethnographic research allows that type of rapport and understanding, and it can allow you to do a lot of good things with it. Um, but the training is, um, it's kind of a hazing ritual, I mean, to to inhabit that worldview that is so destructive and toxic, and also show in the beginning it was like you can't show weakness, you can't show that you're getting triggered, right? But these things take a toll. And so anyone who does this work or wants to engage with people in the service of facilitating disengagement or having a dialogue or discussion, um, should really invest in a good therapist to process the prolonged effects of coming into contact with individuals who feel like your humanity is debatable.
1: Yeah, that's got to be really tough. And I, I think that's one of the things I would very much struggle with. I'm guessing you've spoken to people who not only have very uh, upsetting views, but also potentially have committed upsetting violence.
3: Yes, um, I have... Thankfully, they arrested the people involved, but I've been, uh, you know, put on a kill list for my research. It was an intimidation attempt, uh, which did rile me up in the beginning because you don't know who they are exactly. But thankfully, like they found out the identity of the individuals. They couldn't hide behind that anymore. Um, I've had people on the left come at me with, you know, a lot of the vitriol on the left is it's hard to explain what it is like to be put on a kill list as some of the more reactionary vocal contingents on Twitter are saying that you are not doing activism to their standards. Uh, It's a weird place to be in. Um, And I think that both sides are, how do I say this? I'm not both-sizing this at all. <laughs> um,
1: uh, <laughs> I was <gonna> say, yeah.
3: <laughs> there is something about the performance of activism that is appealing to many people, whether it's beating your chest at a rally or doing all of the hashtags and the slogans and chastising the people that are the bad leftists while not doing the work that could facilitate change. I mean, there's a diversity of tactics involved. If some groups want a violent show of force, meeting that and outnumbering that could be an effective strategy. If there are people who possess a skill set a that allows them to interact with uh, people who hold abhorrent views and still see their humanity behind that, then let them do that. If there's people that think that informing the public through data and research uh, and protecting their communities in that way, let them do that. But I think when the range of tactics gets narrowed to only one kind, um, it just ultimately poisons the, like, the field uh, and the creativity. And uh, it's, it's sad to see, but I think that more people are unifying now and willing to overcome some of the challenges that were in the leftist communities I know that me and some of my peers, just the volume of like, you know, institutional opposition in the beginning and, uh, you know, leftist antagonism by people who didn't understand what we were attempting to do. And then the whole kill list thing and then engaging with these people at the end of the day. Uh, I mean, part of the reason why I created a community is because I saw all of the toxic things that could happen. And I wanted to create a safe space for people to engage with dialogue feel supported and held have resources to make their work sustainable and not necessarily have to be everything all the time like have a space where it's okay to not be okay because the work takes a toll Uh, and we kind of need everybody so that's kind of where i'm at with things right now and i'm very lucky to see my community grow and see my research be you know recognized and used for for good purposes you know (laughs)
1: It's it's incredibly admirable. I mean, you, you know, it's it's a support group. You've created an incredible support group. That, I mean, how how many people have you helped escape the Proud Boys or or sort of convert? Is convert the right word? I I don't know. Um, you know, and and what a how how are some of the people feeling now once they're they're out of it? Is it do they embark on challenging it or do they just want to want nothing to do with it anymore?
3: there are former proud boys that return to a more libertarian uh way of seeing things without the that the version being sold to them um and so like nuanced perspectives and analysis start coming back um It's hard to say how many I've facilitated the disengagement of. I know directly that um, one said, I'm leaving and I blame you. Uh, And uh, so I knew that that I had contributed to that. Um, For instances, like when Charlie Kirk came to my university and my university hired me to help them with, you know, counter messaging and de-escalation, I spoke to Charlie Kirk directly And it's hard to say um, because I was able to push back against some claims and kind of allow him to show the inconsistencies in his position. Um, It's hard to say who in the audience may have listened to that because you never do it to persuade Charlie Kirk or figure like that. But if there's people in the audience that are like, yeah, man, you really dropped the ball on that. Or like, oh, maybe maybe leftists can meme or push back against those things. I don't know what, you can't really measure the outcome of an engagement like that. But um, I've had people, uh, when I was on a podcast for I Don't Speak German, I just talked about, you know, just relating to people on a human level and like saying that there's a place to go if they decide to leave. Um, there was one person who was considering committing a terrorist attack and uh, was like considering strapping up and reached out to the uh, organization I was working for at the time uh, and people were able to deescalate the situation. So that didn't become an option. Um, I I do think that long-term creating the off ramps through the based in book pill series is going to be the way to go to, create a space where like nobody's attacking you but if you want to engage in dialogue you're gonna have to actually read material and engage with content no matter how uh unwilling a lot of them might be in the beginning there's something about being consistent and like hey here's a perspective you might not have considered do with it what you want um so that's something i'm really excited for in like the next coming months um, it's going to take some time, and the political tensions are incredibly high. Um, but if there's a space, especially if they feel humiliated to to go to, that um, is on the other side, uh, I think that that might have the potential to do good in the long term. Uh, so there's there's a lot in the works, but we have to get through this really rough period that's going to occur between Biden-elect and, elect and him being inaugurated,
1: yeah. Well, that's what I wanted to get to. Is, I mean, in the in the short term, things are very tense, and obviously we've got the issues over Trump claiming fraud and the court cases, which I think ten of which haven't been successful already. Um, but you know, it, there's obviously quite a lot of tension right now. Before Trump, well, he won't concede whatever he manages to do that means Biden uh, can then just be president. Um, in the long term, do you see groups like the Proud Boys kind of becoming suppressed because? there's no longer the person in head office that's spouting the same opinions as them, or do you see it as suddenly the government is a threat and that makes them more of a fringe group and therefore perhaps more reason to, to rise up and, and retaliate? And what, are, you, are you concerned about that possibility?
3: So the roots of what we're seeing now actually began forming in response to Obama getting elected. And the, the sense that racial demographics in the country were changing and the uh, like the white genocide light beliefs that that caused many people, you know, like the, the perception of black and brown bodies as an existential threat was something that mobilized many in the like the Tea Party and other movements. And so they had those networks built, they had the anti-feminist networks kind of built out and they were all kind of doing their own thing. And then through Gamergate, they kind of coalesced. Um, so it's hard to say. I think that uh, Trump has been flooding media uh, ecosystems with disinformation and um, Proud Boys have They feel like the election was rigged, stolen from him. Like they're not conceding. Um, So I think that the hatred that Trump has unleashed is not going to go away. Um, I think that the effort to engage in extremism is going to be significantly increased when Biden gets elected, I mean, officially put in that position. Um, but I do hope like, um, the, the founder of the Institute where I work as a research fellow with uh, Bjorn Eiler, uh, said that, you know, post-conflict reconciliation efforts are going to be, um, the strategies to approach. We are a deeply divided nation. We're a deeply divided world. Um, so undoing a lot of the, um, the harm caused by like aggressive social media campaigns is going to be a, an enduring challenge, whether or not Proud Boys follow suit and get reabsorbed back into communities or they maintain their beliefs and try to elect the next president four years from now. It's really hard to say. Um, but I do think that this may dissuade some of them.
1: I suppose a big part as well will be if, things in their immediate area change if there are opportunities for work, if there are opportunities for education that weren't there before, it might allow them to, because a part of me um, assumes, I guess if it was as well as it being Obama being elected that that started this off, it was also, you know, post the global crash, a lot of industries disappeared. A lot of places were hit with quite sudden poverty. Um, So if they can see a, a change and they can see their areas getting better, do you think that would cause a, a difference in how they view the world around them.
3: Oh, definitely. I think uh, the uh, what's the term? NEET, hmm. not in education, employment, or training. Uh, that that contingent of the population is always susceptible to radicalization. They've just got too much time on their hands. They feel victimized by society. They may or may not struggle with depression and other things. Um, so creating an environment where the ability to secure a job is going to be very good. Um, You know, I feel like a lot of people wound up voting against their own interests um, by people who were able to allow them an ideology that made them feel superior to people without actually doing anything. So people might distrust the, the Biden administration, but if policies are enacted that actually affect change for them, I think they would be more inclined to see, you know, a competent leader during a global pandemic is gonna be good to see. You know, I think that just basic competency is is going to win out overall
1: <laughs> yeah it was such a strange moment watching Biden's speech the other night and just going oh he says proper sentences that's amazing <laughs> and I, I realized my bar my I bar for So, how low is the bar now that it's just I oh, can talk properly that's terrible that uh that's now a decent like I, you know I, I, I I'm i sure Biden'd be great but just simply oh right he's uh he's not insulting someone while he's talking this is amazing <laughs>
3: Yeah, like, my friends and my girlfriends and I were watching, I don't know, like, Trudeau and other leaders, and we're like, that is so attractive. Competence. That's so nice. Yeah. Like, bringing that back. I mean, I I do think that a lot of the policies that Biden's going to try to enact in the beginning are still going to be protested or pushed back against. But this administration, it's more likely to affect change here than it is under Trump's administration. So that's where I'm finding, you know, hope, you know, because Biden's definitely not my first choice. And I think that we really uh, did Bernie Sanders a disservice, but I do feel like change can still occur. He's going to have to be more than just not Trump. Yeah. And I'm sure that he'll rise yeah. to the challenge.
1: Yeah. Yeah. As long as the, the Senate isn't all Republican, that's now the fear, isn't it? But uh, we'll see again. That's that's a whole other podcast uh, interview. Um. So thank you so much for having time to talk to me. Um. And uh, especially, I, I sort of feel like, Oliver. It sort of left us at least center left America should be partying for at least a, just take a week off and enjoy the fact that you won't wake up finding that at four a.m. a war was started with North Korea. It's just a relief that you don't have to deal with that anymore. Um, so, <laughs> but um, apart from yourself and all of your work, which all the listeners will will definitely uh, check out. Um, who else uh, would you recommend that people follow or read up on about uh, the far right threat in the U.S. and about uh, dealing with people who've been radicalized? Who are the who are the people that you go to for information?
3: Uh, Shannon Martinez is a former neo-Nazi. Um, she has a unique insight as uh, a mother and as someone who's been dedicated to fighting violent extremism for years. Uh, I think that looking towards women who were either formerly part of the alt-right and neo-Nazism or have studied the gender dynamics of the far right are a really important thing. Um, group to focus on because we're often the canaries in the coal mine. We, we have a sensitivity to things that makes us really good in the realm of threat detection and prevention. Shannon Martinez is one of those individuals. Uh, Kelly Wheel, who has a journalist who has studied uh, disinformation, conspiracy theories, extremism. Leah Sotil, who has uh, part, she's part of the Bundyville podcast, um, which is like AIM and Bundy and the like militia types. Um, Catherine Bellew, the author of Bring the War Home, Cynthia Miller Idris at American University, who has a, uh, a countering violent extremism lab called Project Peril, which is just partnered with the ADL. Um, there's some amazing work coming out of that lab, so definitely something to check out. Uh, Sarah Hightower, who has studied QAnon and is an Om Shinrikyo expert is definitely someone who represents like the best, scrappiest, most knowledgeable people in the field who have, are finally starting to get the recognition they deserve. Um, So many women. Um, So I would start right around there. That's a good, good portion. (laughs)
1: Thank you to Samantha for chatting with me when she could have been endlessly celebrating for a week instead. Um, You can find her at Ashkenaz, that's K-E-N-A-Z-89 on Twitter, and her work podcast and Patreon to help fund her research are at proudboyswhisperer.com. As well as being the Proud Boys Whisperer, Samantha also hosts the Glitter Pill community for those who feel they aren't doing enough with their activism or are burned out by it all, and for those who study extremism too. And do check that out on her website as well. Uh, And obviously all those links shall be in the pod blurb. Uh, Big thanks again too to Michael Marshall, for putting me in touch with Samantha and again do find him on Twitter at Mr M Marsh and check out all that the Merseyside Skeptic Society do too. It's a return to UK politics next week. Yes, sorry everyone. And then I'm in need of guests once again. Uh, what and who shall I do talking to? All suggestions for people to talk to and subjects to find someone to talk to about um, are welcome and you can send those, as per every week, to the app, Bro, Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Or, of course, you could mail in your suggestion and I'll scream and shout that it's fraudulent and shouldn't be counted before considering it means you've definitely suggested someone else entirely. No, actually I won't. I'd actually be really chuffed to get some post, but also really freaked out that you have my home address. Still, uh, you know, as always, probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast, and thank you for lending me your ears, and I promise to bring them back within the 30 days rental period, as agreed, so that I don't get fined. Not only that, but as you've reached the end of the show, you have, of course, earned the famed, okay, not famed, but it should be, paul Bro Hot Podcast fact. As Joe Biden has broken the record for most votes ever in a presidential election, which US presidential candidate had the least votes ever? none other than OG present, isn't that Mark Williams in a wig, George Washington, uh, who not even wanting to run for a second term in office in 1792, didn't publicly announce that he was going for it, and he wasn't very well at the time, but there was no challenging candidate so George Washington still won with 28,579 votes which is less than the population of Accrington. Also, Accrington is known for its incredibly dense building bricks used in the foundations of massive constructs and George Washington is America's founding father, so I mean, they're basically the same are same, aren't they? They're the same. Should have been called George Accrington. But if he still won against the vast challenge of nothingness, who is America's biggest presidential loser of all time? It's Donald Trump, because fuck him and ha 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 ha. And Nigel Farage lost £10,000. Ha 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 ha. it's so sweet. Um, that is this week's Pawpole pa, Bro, Bro Hot Pole Facts and if you loved it and liked this show then please do tell others give it a nice fat five star review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or one of them places and maybe even donate to the Kofi Patreon or Acast supporter page if you didn't like it at all then let me reach out to the other side and listen to your opinions which you can send to the bin at the address of your shitty bin in your shit home and hopefully we can work something out thanks y'all to Acast my brother-in-law sceptic Cat Day and Katie Coxall and this will be back next week when the entire White House staff pretend they can't see or hear Trump and he begins to think he's a ghost and wanders off only to be found days later trying to grab a woman's bum in a Wendy's and steal some fries because he thinks they won't see him. Bye! This week's show is brought to you by Four Seasons Total Landscaping. For when you want to rockery the vote, deck out your campaign or just water down any final dregs of competency. Four Seasons Total Landscaping. The ideal place to reap what you sow